Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, and we just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Now, today's guest is Tanya Rapley. She is doing it big time, people. She is everywhere with her financial advice uh showing up she was in the documentary she did that i've seen her on everywhere even that show Love she's just doing it so big and i've been wanting to have her on the show her message and advice and empowerment and real knowledge about how to get your finances right is exactly uh what we need so for those who be listening on apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio. Simplecast, Stitcher, and Spotify. Will you please introduce yourself, Tanya? Yeah. Oh, thank you. And welcome, Assalam. Uh, I am a financial educator, change agent, um, serial entrepreneur at this point, mompreneur. Um, I love that you have your spin on edupreneur, um, but mompreneur and um, just a woman who decided to go for it and choose joy, you know, at the end of the day. Awesome. Awesome. I love that. And I loved how you said, I'm a citizen of the world. Uh, born in the Philippines. That's all right. Yeah, I really am a citizen of the world. Uh, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about how um, I moved a lot. I, I've lived in quite a few places from North Carolina. Well, parents were in the military, went to middle school, elementary middle school in Oklahoma, high school in Charlotte, North Carolina, college in Miami, Florida moved to Cincinnati, Ohio for an internship, then moved to San Antonio, Texas for about a year after that, then decided to just go ahead and to go ahead to New York, lived in New York for nine years, and currently live in Los Angeles, and and preparing to move back down south at the end of this year. And um, I, I just realized that people are similar, the world is similar, no matter where you go, if you have a hustle about you, you will find your bearings and you will hit the ground running wherever you go. And so, I, I mean, I haven't lived internationally yet, but I'm sure that's on the horizon. So, yeah. Well, as an adult, I haven't lived internationally because I, I lived in Germany as a child. But um, definitely a citizen of the world and all that the world has to offer. I think the world is so big and it's for, there for us to explore. Mm. Mm. Okay. Already. So what, because I'm always curious about how did people get to where they are now? So what did you think that you would be doing when you were growing up and what drew you to personal finance? So when I went to college, I went to, so as a kid, I was never that kid who had a clear understanding of what I want to be when I grow up. I, um, I knew I wanted flexibility. I knew that. I knew I wanted flexibility. And I wanted money. <laughs> um, didn't know how I was going to get that. Um, in, college, in high school, I thought I wanted to be a dentist. Got to college and looked at the curriculum and said, no, this is not for me. Um, started looking in the catalog and was like, oh, okay, this public administration thing looks cool. Got into public administration. Um, when I started public administration, my goal was to be a foreign services officer. I wanted to uh, work internationally. Um, on behalf of the United States government. And I thought that was a, would be an exciting career path. Um, but then as things started to shake out, it, you know, it's extremely competitive to get those positions. I started to fall out of love with that, that ideal of doing that. And 
I went used my degree and went to work in nonprofit because my degree it also serves nonprofit industry. So I began working in nonprofit. And when I was working at the, my um, nonprofit job in Brooklyn, I was creating programming for low-income women. And it was during that time I brought in a financial literacy workshop. And I was like, you know, Tanya, you brought this workshop in for them, but you need this workshop for you. And that's when I started to um, look into getting my finances together. And I actually enjoyed it. I, I, I think I was looking for an escape from the work that I was doing. I always loved writing. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to exercise my writing talents and that that hunger and I'm going to create a blog and I'll write about my journey to become financially responsible along the way you know maybe I get a sponsorship from Macy's or something like that and get some free clothes wouldn't that be great and um that's how it started and here we are now seven years later been self-employed for five um places I never envisioned and imagined that I would be mm. So you wrote the money manual, a practical money guide to help you succeed on your financial journey. What was the pain point behind writing the book and what is the journey you take the reader on? My DMs were the pain point. My DMs, because I was always getting questions about, um, you know, where to start. I can't afford to work with you. I can't afford your services. I can't afford your course and so forth. So I wanted to create something. Uh, I wrote that book five years after I had been doing my fat finance. So um, it was really a compilation of the questions that I received from my audience. We surveyed our audience. What are the things you want to know about personal finance? And it was just that. It was a compilation of everything that most people need to know when they're getting started on their financial journey and putting it in a place where they can easily access it and revisit it if they need to, but putting the power literally in their hands to take control of their finances and start to transform them. And we, we, we take the reader through the journey of, setting your goals and determining what's important for you because um i think a lot of us have goals based on what's important to our parents and what's important to our caretakers and what's expected of us rather than what we actually want out of our life and what we want to experience and so having people set those goals and then helping them break down okay so what needs to be accomplished what are the small steps on the way to this goal and how do we pull back the bigger financial picture like yes you want to solidify your financial foundation but where are those cracks or where are those empty areas that we need to work on and let's do that bit by bit so that you don't get overwhelmed so we take them from there into the point where okay i have my financial foundation established i'm feeling more comfortable and confident in doing things that i said i would do with my money how do I amp it up from here? How do I protect what I've built? And how do I start to make my money work for me and to grow it? So that's the journey that we take them on. So on your website, myfabfinance.com, it says that everyone has a money story. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And how does that impact someone's relationship with money? Yeah, everyone absolutely has a money story. And I actually touched on this quite a bit on the Love Hour podcast in that conversation, because all of us, money you know it it costs money to live like eat, unless you are somewhere that is off the grid and like i remember i was listening to this woman speaking her parents literally raised her in the hills of appalachia like okay maybe your money story is a little different there but if you've existed in the, the the traditional framework of society the money has played a role in your life and how you relate to it and that's your money story is how it, how money has shown up in your life and how you relate to it as a result whether you experienced abundant growing, abundance growing up or whether you experienced lack, um, whether you witnessed your parents you know, have a contentious relationship with money, contentious relationship with each other related to money or no relationship at all, like all those things affect how you deal with money as an adult. 
So when I say everyone has a money story, everyone has a way they approach money because of what they've seen. Mm. I'm an educator. And when I flip the script on my podcast to talk mm -hmm. about educators becoming entrepreneurs and started talking about the need for financial literacy and entrepreneurship to be taught, taught in the classrooms, I had a lot of pushback from mm. fellow educators because they were like, why are you charging people for that lesson plan? That stuff should be for free. Why are we talking about money? I, you know, we're educators because for them and so many of us, you, well, none of us go into education to become wealthy anyway. For, <laughs> you go because you want to create change. Yeah. Yeah. But for so many of them, it, it just seemed antithetical to the purpose of what we were doing. And I'm just, I'm wondering, like, why do some people have that mindset that money and to talk about money and to want money is a bad thing? Yeah, you know, it's important for, this is very interesting. So yes, I think that money should be taught in the classroom, but money should also be taught at home. Um, I think that our educators and our education system is already um, struggling to serve students in the way that it has been. And they need to perfect that before we start bringing money into, into the equation. Um, but I think also, I'm also a believer that, you know, education is continued at home. And so if there are gaps that are not present in your child's educational experience, and it's your job to fill those gaps and expose them to it, we're all learning about money, regardless of if we're taught about it in the, in the technical sense, because we're watching, we, a lot of us learn by watching how our parents relate to money. We watch our parents pay bills. It's not necessarily a class you go to on this is how you pay bills. It's like, okay, this is, you watch your parents, like this is how you call the number on the back, you send the check in or you sign up, create an online account and that's how you do it. Um, what I think is absent in a lot of financial education um, and what I would like to see more so and rather than this is how you, you know, this is what a budget is, this is so forth. I would like to see more um, work around the emotional aspects of spending because that's actually what contributes to the, a lot of the issues that people have when it relates to money. It's not that they don't understand how to open up checking account. It's that they don't necessarily know how to emotionally deal with, I want this now. What are my other options other than buying it now? And what is delayed gratification? And what does that look like? And, you know, what is goal setting? And how do I set goals so that I am operating by my goals and not by my emotions? Um, I think there needs to be more work done around that. And I think that that work would even benefit educators who are often operating on a, um, on a slim budget. I just think that it's about how we approach it. And rather than saying, here's another task for you to do, um, maybe there's an educator who's particularly passionate about something about like this. The way I became passionate about it as a, um, as a community event organizer, I became passionate about it as I learned more about it maybe approaching it in that aspect instead of just giving an assignment, like talk to the kids about money. Like, no, are you interested in improving your own finances? Let's guide you through the process. And as you learn, maybe you'll want to share it with other people. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier how a lot of our sort of scripts about money are rooted back to our relationships as children and what we've seen growing up. How does someone begin to change that script, that relationship with money to in order to, for them to live the life they want to create? Yeah, it's acknowledgement. A lot of it's an acknowledgement. A lot of us are operating on auto control. 
uh, or autopilot when it comes to our financial situation and the decisions that we're making. So it is realizing like, okay, stepping back and saying, okay, what, what are my thoughts as they relate to money and how am I like, how am I operating? Am I operating because of what I've learned or am I operating out of fear? Am I operating? Like what, is, what is driving my financial decisions and what, do, what are my current financial decisions and what do I want them to look like? And based on what I want them to look like, what, what can I do today to move in that direction versus away from the, where I just came from or where I'm, where I'm currently at? Mm. It took me, a, it still is difficult for me to spend money because I, <sighs> right, I've been broke and mm-hmm. the wife and I sort of earlier in our, in our marriage got into a situation and we just buckled down and just said, okay, we're paying off everybody. And I think we owe like one account, but after doing that and then doing the consulting stuff and the writing freelance writing and getting that extra pay money coming in stuff is good. If it's not so money going towards renovations of the house, mm-hmm. big money isn't spent, right? It just sits there. And I've mm-hmm. wanted a big TV for a long time. And it literally took me getting in money from sales of my documentary for me to say, okay, let me treat myself. Because mm-hmm. for me, it was like, I don't want to be broke again. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be without again. I don't want to need it and not have it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that that's that fear, you know, that's the, you know, I, my husband deals with that a lot. My husband um, grew up in the Bronx, New York, to single mother, both entrepreneurs. Um, and I deal a lot with that mindset with him as well. It's understandable, you know, and I would rather someone, you know, who makes money and necessarily doesn't want to spend it than someone who's spending what they don't have. Um, because we can, we can deal. We can deal with you having a surplus of money and figure out where you can put it so that it works for you. Um, but it is also giving realizing that you create you you say like what is the purpose of, of obtaining money if it's not serving the ultimate life vision you want to experience mm-hmm. what is the purpose of cre- of generating revenue if it's just sitting there is it just to say i have this um and there is a delicate balance between enjoying your work enjoying your revenue and also saving and ensuring that you're making the wise financial the right financial decisions um, so that is continuously checking in with yourself and giving yourself your own reality checks, you know, um, looking at, okay, I want to buy this big screen TV. How many times over could I buy this? I want to buy it today. If I could buy this, you know, if I could buy three of these, then I'm, I'm, I'm in a pretty good con- situation where I can buy one of these because then that money, and that way I know I'm not in a place of lack, but if I'm spending the last bit of money I have, it's not time for you to buy that. Um, when me and my husband are thinking about purchases and so forth, we always say, how are we on our financial goals? How are we on our debt elimination plan? How are we on our savings? How are we on, um, you know, what, what's everything else that is important to us financially? If we're doing good, then okay, then we're going to go ahead and make that purchase. Or we're going to go ahead and do that. But if we're not where we want to be, then it's not time. And I think it's important to do that and ask yourself, like, how am I doing as it relates to my goals? Because that helps you release a little bit like, okay, I'm in a good position. I am safe. But you're not alone, Dr. Will. A lot of people, I mean, even my mom, my mom grew up um, to a single mother, five kids in a a three-bedroom household uh, in South Carolina. And um, 
my mom has it matters with that. She is a retired, she's retired from the Air Force. Um, so that we, that's like one of the most stable things that you're going to get is that retirement check every month. Um, but she still has things wherein she doesn't let her gas tank get below half a tank. Um, she stockpiles to the point where they have, they literally have three freezers and like they have meat and everything. I told my husband jokingly, I said, you know what? If coronavirus really hit the fan, we're going home. <laughs> like, cause I know that mom is stockpiled. I know she has everything, but that fear of lack, you know, that fear of lack drives her, but in the same sense, it's that fear of lack that has allowed her to be a provider and that person that people leaned on if they're in an emergency situation. So it has its place. And it's just a matter of um, allowing yourself to enjoy your work. I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to try to do that. I, <laughs> I don't even look at the, the money, right? Every now and then, if I'm checking the balance I may, of one account, I may see that sitting there and going, all right. But I'm never, <laughs> but I'm never going like, okay, what do I have now? What do I have now? I just know that every month when you put that 10% away, the goal is to never have to touch that. Yeah. And I, 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 I'd be like, oh, I don't want to touch it. I know it's there for savings. I don't want to touch it. Let me find other ways to do it. And that's another thing about it. I feel like when you do get in a habit and you really get in a habit, you start to ask yourself, is this worth me digging into the money that I've like habitually put away? You really start to ask yourself, like, you know, rather than the person who puts away like $100 here when they can, $100 there, um, the person who like really makes a habit out of it, you become so committed to that habit that you question whether or not you're going to use that money. Um, I've been in situations where I'll find other ways. Like to, instead of pulling money out of my savings, I'm like, there has to be another way. I don't want to touch the money in my savings. Like let's, let's figure out. And you get real creative. Um, the same way people should get creative in, instead of like thinking like I have to create debt to do this or I have to pull from my savings. You should always be um, being creative. Mm -hmm. So let's get into your journey into entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. uh, as I mentioned earlier, I saw you in the documentary. She did that. People go to Netflix, check that documentary out. Uh, Tanya, as well as other black female entrepreneurs are sharing so many gems. Um, how did you, how did you know when you were ready to start a business and what kind of conversations were you having with yourself? I, you know, I don't know if I necessarily knew I was ready. I mean, I had been um, saving money and I had been paying down my debt. So I was in a good financial position. I had been building my business and bringing in multiple revenue streams. So in the documentary, there's a point where it's like, I quit, where I just was like, my boss, I was like, you know what, I quit. Like I went and I wrote my letter of resignation and submitted to him that, that afternoon. Um, but I, I had been preparing for that. And that is, one of those things where, you know, you have your, I, that's why it's important to have your flight fund because I ended up staying longer at that job because they had given me a raise. But then it came to a point where it's like, the raise is not worth my, is not worth my literal worth. It is not worth me not showing up for my audience in the way that I want to. And it's not worth me not doing the things that I want to do and living life the way I want to experience them. I don't want to be here with y'all every day. I don't like y'all like that. Um, like, I don't, I don't like how things are going on in here. And I like how things are going on with my business. So for me, it really was building my revenue streams up so that I was comfortable and confident. And even after I left 
um, I experienced a significant blow because the client that I had lined up that had replaced my full-time income experienced a PR nightmare and I ended up having to let go of that client. And so at that point, that's when I was just like, okay, this is where hustle kicks in. And this is where we're going to figure out what other things can we get going. But I, I had built a community. I had tested my concept. And so I, I knew that I had options and different options for making money. If one option didn't work, then I had other options. And I think that's a, that, that is something that concerns me a lot, especially today in our Instagram age, where you know, we see these entrepreneurs who like, you know, started a, a soap business or started something else. And it's like, they really only have one revenue stream. So, you know, right now thinking about what's going on, what happens if supply chains dry up and you can't get the ingredients that you utilize to make your products that you sell to your consumers. Now you have unfilled orders. This is your primary revenue stream. You have to issue refunds, but you also have living expenses. It's important to diversify your revenue. Um, so if you teach in soap making classes at the local community college, whatever it may be, or teaching you know, soap entrepreneurship on Udemy or whatever, it's important to find ways to bring in different revenue streams um, because that just helps you become a more confident entrepreneur, a more focused entrepreneur, and a more recession-proof entrepreneur. Mm, and I'm glad you brought that up. And if you will, speak a little bit on that because as you know education educators we used to be like you get this job we're gonna retire or die um we never had to worry about losing our jobs but there have been a lot of budget cuts around the country and there have been educators getting pink slips yeah. and you know you can't just count on this being your primary source of income mm -hmm. so when i talk to educators you know yeah i talked about you know become a consultant you know write that book do mm -hmm. those courses, sell your curriculum on teacher pay teachers, et cetera. But also tell them that even if let's say entrepreneurship in the traditional sense, isn't your thing, creating multiple streams of income, you need to do and need to have just in case you are one of those people that the school district says, um, we might not be able to teach art next year mm -hmm. and you lose your job. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, yeah, I mean, even the government shutdown, right? A few years ago, my little sister works for the federal government. And I remember before I, like, before my mom believed in my fat finance, she was always trying to say, why don't you get a good government job? Like, Nicole, get a good government job. And then the government shutdown happened and my mom was helping my sister pay her bills because that good government job that was always supposed to be a sure bet was not. And so um, it's because we're, we're becoming faced with that um, more and more and more. And it's, it's unfortunate that education, educators are too. You know, sometimes you're going to be able to monetize a skill set that is related to your, your nine to five and your trade. And sometimes you have other skill sets that aren't related to that. And sometimes it might necessarily be a skill set, but it just is a big opportunity. So you have a car and you can drive for um, Postmates or, you know, you can make deliveries or so forth. Or, you know, you figure out how to monetize your time and bring in more money with your time. But I think that it, we kind of owe it to ourselves that when things are good and the economy has definitely been in an upward tick, you know, we're in the longest, it's like the longest, um, the longest economy, economic um, boom. Um, in recent times and so forth, this was a time to make your money and put your money away. So then when we hit a recession, like you have money aside, you've learned that skill set, you found ways to monetize your skills. And so I'm not saying that it's too late, but get get to it, you know, get to it, figure out other ways. Like, you know, 
figure out, learn, learn from individuals like you learn from Dr. Will, like how you've been able to um, pivot out of the classroom or pivot out of the traditional education structure and create other opportunities um, because it, it, it's important. It's like, I don't think that it's no longer a choice. It's, mm -hmm. it, it will make the difference between someone who survives the, um, the next recession with their credit intact and still own their home and still own their car and still have their, their um, retirement account versus someone who has to drain their entire retirement account. Someone who potentially is home gets foreclosed on and loses their car and finds himself unemployed. It will be the difference. And there will be those who are okay during it. And there will be those who are toughest hit by it. And it's a decision that decision is based on the things that we do now in preparation. Mm. So when someone has gotten to that point and they always you'll hear this thing where when you hit rock bottom mm -hmm. that's when you are ready to move you're ready yeah. to change <laughs> in your life and when that and when and so someone is ready to start to get their financial house in order what pitfalls pitfalls should they avoid I mean, I don't even think you should wait till you hit rock bottom because it's a lot easier to to build from from the middle than it is from the bottom. <laughs> I think that when it when it um, when it's placed upon your consciousness and placed upon your heart, it's something you need to do. It's time to move. Um, but the first, I think, the biggest pitfalls I see people trying to do it all at one time. They think, mm -hmm. oh, okay, I got to build my savings and I got to pay off all my debt and I got to boost my credit and so forth, without understanding that these things have a trickle down effect. When you are intentional and work on paying down your debt, or when you when you build your savings, you are less likely to create debt in an emergency situation. You're less likely to rely on debt. When you are building your savings, you are creating financial discipline. That means you're less likely to buy impulse purchases and so forth. That trickles down to your ability to pay down your debt and create less debt. That trickles down to your ability to, to your credit and how it impacts your credit score and boosting your credit. So I don't think that people realize how interrelated things are and they try to become um, as versed on as many things as possible and are doing too many things. And that then it becomes, becomes frustrating because then you're like, I don't ever have any money. I don't ever do anything I want to do. I don't, I'm just like, I'm just tired of it. And then you kind of rebel and find yourself back in point, point A or you how you fall back or you have a mishap and then you lose faith in yourself um, instead of starting, you know, doing, taking it step by step. So I think those are the biggest, that's the biggest pitfall that I see um, with individuals, just not realizing how it's all interconnected and it all will, you know, lifting as you rise. It, it, it's impossible. I feel like it is impossible to work on your credit and, and to work on like build your savings and eliminate your debt and not see a boost in your credit. Unless, you um unless you're unless you don't have any active credit accounts but otherwise if you're paying down your debt and you're paying things off and making sure things aren't going to collections and you're building your savings your credit is going to be a reflection of that mm. so this is what i i have watched so many videos on people talk about finances and sometimes it feels like very restrictive and sometimes to the point to where you're like, I can't enjoy anything. I can't, <laughs> I can't take a sip of Starbucks because it'll just mess me up. Um, what, what are your thoughts on people sort of still being able to enjoy life while making sure that they are consistent in doing the work to get themselves on a solid financial footing? 
Yeah, you know, the one of the models of MyFab Finance is we don't do deprivation as a financial freedom strategy. Like, I don't, I don't believe in deprivation. I think that we, you work for your, your money and you should be able to enjoy it and so forth. But um, that becomes, that goes down into being goal-focused and knowing what your goals are. So if you, and having milestones when it comes to your goals. So you say, okay, I have a savings goal of $10,000. I reach 25% of that. I have $2,500 put away. I, I can do something nice for myself. I'm 25, 25% of my goal. I'm at 50% of my goal. I'm at 75% of my goal. Like by not having those goals, you don't know when you're being financially successful. Um, or, you know, saying like, my goal is to pay off, you know, this one of my credit cards to pay off XYZ amounts of my credit cards. If you don't have particular financial goals, then you don't know when you're doing the right thing with your money. And if you don't know when you're doing the right thing with your money, then you're fearful of doing the wrong thing with your money all the time. And so by having those goals, it lets you know when, it, when like, okay, you're on track, you're, you're able to do this and be able to enjoy your, enjoy your, um, your money or do something for yourself because you've been doing what you said you would do. So speaking of goals, what are some of the financial, financial goals people should have at different periods of their lives, like your 20s, 30s, 40s, et cetera, especially when you're thinking about retirement? <sighs> that you know, it, it it all varies, and it varies based on family situation, right? Because you know, someone who comes from a relatively stable, affluent family, or you know, or just a relatively stable family, is going to have different goals from someone who doesn't have any familial support at all. Um, but I mean, it should always be to have your overhead, uh, have at least one month of your overhead and savings. I think for someone in their 20s, even the goal of having $1,000 in savings that you don't touch in your early 20s, just having $1,000 set aside. Like in your early 20s, that's a lot of money. Just having that aside that you, you don't touch and contributing to your workplace 401k um, and not destroying your credit. Like, um, so maybe, maybe you're not focused on your credit. Maybe you're not ready to buy a house or anything like that, but you're all, you're making sure you pay your bills on time so that when you do move into the position where you're ready to make credit dependent purchases, you didn't destroy it. Um, but then when, when you get into your thirties, I think it is also, and depending on what, if someone has children, you know, is thinking about, you know, life insurance, having a life insurance policy, even if you don't have children, you know, it's cheaper to get your life insurance in your twenties than it is in your 30s and in your 40s and 50s, it goes up with um, the older you get. So getting those pure, those basics established and in your 30s kind of building on those basics and continue to build on those basics. Um, investing, it, even if you're contributing to a workplace 401k, maybe you don't invest in the, tr the market, traditional market per se, but you're putting money aside so that it can grow for you. That's important at every different milestone. Uh, and then once you start to hit, I think once you start to hit like, your late 40s, 50s, you also should be thinking about, okay, how do I start to minimize any debt that I've created? How do I start to pare down my lifestyle and scale back so that I can live on the retirement that I have set aside or if I have to live on social security or whatever so that I can afford to live on that? How do I start to scale things back um, and, and live a, a debt minimal lifestyle essentially? Um, while continuing to save, continue to save outside of your retirement plan. So it all, like I said, it all, it all depends. It, it all depends on people's situation and scenario, but those are just a few generals based on the general population and where they'll find themselves. Yeah. My wife and I both have two uh, life insurance policies. And when I was sitting down to get it, you know, arranged, I told the guy, I said, look, I want the house paid off, but I don't want murder suspect amount. <laughs> I don't want that high when people are like, oh, hey. Um, 
but I just want, for me personally, I just want to make sure that if I leave, that my wife did not have to worry about the mortgage, that the yeah. house will be paid off and she could walk away with a, mm-hmm. with a clean slate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's important. A lot of people don't take it. They, they don't think about taking care of their loved ones in that regard. I always say like, you know, people, it's a common thing. I see like mother, I see people like their children have like every sneaker. Their children have all these clothes but their children don't have a 529 plan. Their children don't, like their parents don't have a life insurance policy. It's like, your children can't spend these sneakers when, you know, if something were to happen to you. This isn't going to pay for their college. Um, They're going to grow out of these probably within the next six months. And so it really is dialing back and focusing on what's the most important and and what, in the long term, you know, what's important. Mm. So you mentioned investing and a lot of people have this idea and you'll probably meet them where they think investing is for the wealthy mm-hmm. and not for the everyday person. And, you know, educators, you know, I mean, you could make it low as $30,000 somewhere and $100,000 somewhere else. But that $100,000 in New York and California is not the same. It's th- it's th- it might as well be 30. <laughs> <laughs> not spending the same. Uh, so, so how would you tell someone how how should they approach investing? Investing is not, um, there's different ways to invest. If you're contributing to a 401k or a retirement plan, you're investing, like you're putting, you're putting money aside. Um, and you, you want to make sure you're doing that consistently. But even if you're not, um, there are so many robo advisors out there. Stash is one of my favorite ones. Stash, you literally can contribute like $50. Um, you, you, it's, it makes it so easy and educates you and teaches you how you can get started investing. And you can do it with as little as $5. You can get started with $5 and just do $5 a week. And that money starts to grow. Or you can do you know $10 a week or whatever it may be. But it's about getting started and doing something um, and allowing your money to grow and allowing your money to make money. Eventually, you're going to have to ramp that up. But even if you are on a tight income, you can be doing things now. Um, that are have low barrier to entry that can get you started. Awesome, awesome, Tanya. It's been awesome. I just had one more question. Okay. Uh, for you, so thank you for coming on the show. Uh, before we go, what is the most important lesson you've learned about money, and how can people work with you? The most important lesson I've learned about money is that we are, the money that we are paid is not necessarily in alignment with our worth. Um, And I say that because when I was working at a nine to five, the most I ever made working for somebody else was $60,000. I basically had to beg to get there despite having a master's degree and everything else. As an entrepreneur, and the the products, the the campaigns that I work on and so forth, I have had campaigns where they paid me that for a day, $60,000 for, for a day of work. And I have learned that when you, you can, when you start to take control over the way that you earn money, instead of waiting for someone to tell you how you earn money and how you're, much you're going to be charged, um, you, you take control of your earning potential and you're rewarded for that. And so, um, you know, a lot of people say, you know, I just got to work really hard. It's got to work really hard. I work, got to work really hard. We all know someone who worked hard and, and wasn't fairly compensated and was, and was broke. It's about working smart. 
And so I found the smarter that you work, the more money you make. That, that's, that's what I've learned. It's the smarter that you work, the more money that you make. Uh, and the more money that you make, the more easy it is to make more money. Um, mm. So that's what I've learned. Um, big, that's one of the biggest financial lessons I've learned because I am not the person who's like, you know, you just got to just deal with your peanuts. No, make more money. Is there. People are doing it every day. Make more and don't feel guilty about it because it frees you up to contribute to causes that you care about. It frees you up to support brands and people that you care about. It frees you up to support your family and show up for your family in ways that you want to. It, it allows you to do so much. So it does not be, be benefit you to act like money isn't important. Um, so that's that. Um, and then for people, how they can work with me. So we have our membership club, which is Blue Ribbon Club. Last year, we simplified everything in how we do our work. And the Blue Ribbon Club is a membership club that we created to help people break the cycle of living paycheck to paycheck. It's structured. Each week, each month, you get a class, a session with me. Like this next session, I'm walking through people through creating their budget with the budgeting template that we created, particularly for our members. And it's $27 a month. So if anyone is interested in working with me, that's the best way to work with me because I no longer have the capacity to do one-on-one -on -one services as I grow. And I recently purchased another business and now a mother and everything else. I don't have the time. So that is how I am serving people. Mm. That's all right. That's all right. Ooh, people, I can't wait to release this episode. I'm telling you, <laughs> you're going to love this. Um, so uh, again, Tanya, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for your persistence. Thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. Now, people, you know how I do this. This podcast episode will be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Simplecast, and Spotify. I need you to subscribe, leave your ratings, leave your comments, because I'm trying to be found. And your boy's trying to get Oprah on the show. And I want her to know that I'm doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Tonya Rapley, for coming on and dropping so many gems. And I want to thank you for checking out the Dr. Will Show, the mobile university for entrepreneurs. As always, people, invest in you. EDU, peace.